Welcome to PwC IFRS Talks, your source for all things IFRS. I'm your host, Rahasa Sheikh. For those of you who are my regular listeners, you'll know that we've been working on a mini-series in relation to sustainability-related reporting. Today, we're taking a pause on that mini-series to bring you an update on the latest developments at the IFRS Interpretations Committee, following the June meeting on the 14th and 15th of June. And to talk us through those developments, I'd like to welcome back Kasten Kansauke to IFRS Talks. Thanks for joining me today, Kasten. Thanks, Rayata. Um, I'm glad to be back again. So it's quite a full agenda this month. Um, and Kasten, I understand many members were able to come to the meeting in London in person. How was that? Was, was this the first time you attended a meeting in person to discuss IFRIC issues around the, I guess, physical table? Well, we had a first hybrid meeting in March where a few members were joining in person. The April meeting was again fully virtual, but then this June meeting really was the first time for quite some time where almost everyone was attending in person. We, we only had three members who couldn't join in person and were dialing in remotely, which means the vast majority of committee members were present in person. So, so I really was quite excited to be back in London this week and see everyone again. Um, it was a great opportunity to catch up with other committee members, with some of the board members, and of course with the staff. So that was really great, and we certainly had very good and lively discussions with, you know, quite a full agenda extending over two days. Great, yeah, um, it's great, isn't it, to have those physical meetings as um, touch points as well? Absolutely. So there were four items that came back on the agenda, which we have covered previously. Um, this includes three items that were finalized as agenda decisions. And just as a reminder for our listeners, they'll still be subject to board approval. So within those um, finalized agenda decisions, we have the cash received via electronic transfer, a settlement for a financial asset, which we covered in episode 116. There was the finalized agenda decision on negative low emission vehicle credits, which we covered in episodes 121 and 125. And there was a finalized agenda decision on the transfer of insurance coverage under group of annuity contracts, which we covered in episode 125 and 127. And the fourth item the committee um, also discussed was a recommendation to include as part of the broader discussions on the FICE project. And that was the issue on special purpose acquisition companies, so SPACs, um, in relation to the classification of public shares as financial liabilities as equities. And we had a very specific um, SPACs podcast on that, which was in episode one to eight. We'll include links to the relevant IFS talks that I've just mentioned in the talking points that accompany this podcast, which is available on Viewpoint. So the focus of today's podcast are the new issues that were on the agenda. Um, so there was one submission that is around a specific question on hyperinflation accounting. And there was one submission that is around how to apply FX translation to a group of insurance contracts that involve multiple foreign currencies. So let's discuss the first new issue. So this was on the consolidation of a non-hyperinflationary subsidiary by a hyperinflationary parent. Carson, could you provide our listeners with an overview of the fact pattern? Sure. So the committee received a submission that is essentially about the interaction of IS-21, so the standard on foreign currency translation, and IS-29, the standard on hyperinflation. Now, IS-29 is typically thought of in the context of a parent, 
that has a subsidiary in a country that is hyperinflationary. So where the functional currency of a subsidiary is that of a hyperinflationary economy. Now, just as a quick reminder, in, in addition to the foreign currency translation required by IS-21, IS-29 would then require the subsidiary's financial statements to be restated based on the inflation rate of that hyperinflationary eco economy when preparing the consolidated financial statements of the parent entity that sits in a non-hyperinflationary economy. Now, the submission essentially asks about the accounting when the situation is just the other way around. That is, you know, where the parent's functional currency is that of a hyperinflationary economy and the subsidiary's functional currency is that of a non-hyperinflationary economy. So typically, where a parent that sits in, in a hyperinflationary economy has one or more subsidiaries in a non-hyperinflationary economy. Now, my sense is that this question is becoming more and more relevant in today's economic environment, where inflation rates are going up and where you know more economies are likely to become hyperinflationary. So obviously, this issue is most relevant for economies that, that have been hyperinflationary for some time, such as, for example, Argentina or Venezuela, as well as those that are currently moving into hyperinflation, such as, for example, Turkey. And of course, it's also relevant for those countries that have a significant risk of becoming hyperinflationary in the near future. Um, what was the specific accounting question that was asked? So specifically, the submission asked whether in preparing its consolidated financial statements, the parent applies IS-29 to restate the current year and comparative amounts presented for its non-hyperinflationary subsidiary. Now, it seems clear that in preparing its consolidated financial statements, the parent would apply the foreign currency translation requirements in IS-21 and therefore translate the subsidiary's assets and liabilities at the closing rate and the subsidiary's income and expenses at their transaction dates which for practical reasons will often be an average rate provided foreign currency rates do not fluctuate significantly. And then recognize all resulting exchange differences in other comprehensive income. However, the question that has arisen is whether after having applied those IS-21 requirements on foreign currency translation, the parent would restate the subsidiary's financial subsidiary's results and financial positions in terms of the measuring unit at the reporting date. So reflecting an appropriate inflation rate as is required by IS-29 for financial statements of an entity whose functional currency is the currency of a hyperinflationary economy. Now, the submission outlines two views. Quite simply, the first view is that the parent does not restate the results and financial position of its non-hyperinflationary subsidiary. And the second view is that the parent's parent does restate the results and financial position of its non-hyperinflationary subsidiary. Now, for those who are interested, the staff's paper describes in more detail the underlying rationale for each of these views. Yes, thanks, Karsten. So I guess in expanding on those two views, where did the committee land? Sure. So so the committee discussed these questions and views from this, you know, on this from committee members were quite diverse. In fact, committee members were all over the place on this question. Some committee members felt that view one was the only appropriate way to read the standard, whilst others felt that the only acceptable view was, was view two. There were also quite a few members that felt that none of the views can be precluded. 
And so entities could reasonably read the requirements in IS-21 and IS-29 in either of these ways. So essentially allowing entities an accounting policy choice on this question. However, the staff did not propose to issue a tentative agenda decision or TAD, and so, and so no agenda decision is likely to be published anytime soon. So I guess what would be the next steps then in this case? Um, now, the staff paper proposed and committee members agreed that further research and outreach is done to obtain additional information on the prevalence of the matter and also consider the feasibility of possible narrow scope standard setting and to get more insights from investors around the usefulness of the information provided under each of these views. So no tentative agenda decision was published on this one and the issue is likely going to come back to the committee at some stage. Now, in, in today's environment with quickly rising inflation rates, this matter may become more widespread. And so this might support the argument of possible standard setting in this space. However, in, in the meantime, given the diversity in views of committee members on this matter, my sense is that at this time, both the, of the views described would seem to be acceptable. Now, because, you know, because applying either view one or view two is quite different in terms of the financial reporting outcome, my sense is that entities that are affected should carefully consider which disclosures are required in this space to give users of financial statements some transparency on this matter. Thanks, Carson. Yeah, I definitely agree. Transparency is always key um, and disclosure is the best place to address this. So more to come on this, hopefully, in the future. So let, let's move on to the, the second new issue then. Um, and that was the submission on the application of IFRS 17 and IS21 to a group of insurance contracts with foreign currency cash flows. Carsten, could you provide our listeners with a summary of the background on this issue? Sure. So, so for background, for entities that issue insurance contracts, IFRS 17 requires such entities to apply the recognition and measurement requirements in IFRS 17 to groups of insurance contracts. So based on the requirements in IFRS 17, a group of insurance contract is essentially combined into a single unit of account. Now, as a reminder, under IFRS 17, the measurement of a group of insurance contract is comprised of two components. First, the fulfillment cash flows, and second, a contractual service margin or CSM. Now, the fulfillment cash flows are essentially an estimate of the present value of all the future cash flows arising from that group of insurance contract adjusted to reflect financial and non-financial risks. And the CSM is essentially the unearned, unearned profit that relates to the future service to be provided under the respective group of contracts. Now, an entity that issues insurance contracts uh, often conducts activities in more than one currency. An entity may, you know, for example, in issue insurance contracts in more than one jurisdiction with contracts denominated in the currency of the jurisdiction in which they are issued. So an entity may, for example, issue insurance contracts in pound sterling in the UK, euro in Germany, and Hong Kong dollar in Hong Kong, and so on. Also, an entity may issue an individual insurance contract with cash flows in that single contract being in more than one currency. For example, a contract with premiums in euro and claims in US dollars. And finally, even if insurance contracts are issued in only one currency, for example, euro, an entity may incur costs such as policy administration costs in a different currency, for example, pound sterling. 
So in summary, the question really is how to deal with foreign currency translation in these types of situations where a group of insurance contract contains cash flows in multiple currencies. Thanks, Carsten. And it's helpful to reflect on you know, just a variety of uh, ways these contracts can include um, foreign currency elements. So in analysing the fact pattern, the staff effectively grouped the issue into two questions. So question one was whether an entity considers currency risk for the purpose of identifying portfolios of insurance contracts. And question two was how an entity applies IFRS 17 and IS21 in measuring a group of insurance contracts with foreign currency cash flows. So let's maybe take each one in turn. So on the first question, um, and that was in relation to whether an entity considers currency risk when identifying the portfolios of insurance contracts, what was the committee's view on this? Now, on, on the first question, to put this into context, let, let's maybe start with a quick reminder of the requirements in IFRS 17 in relation to how groups of insurance contracts are established. Essentially, IFRS 17 requires a three-step approach in that regard. The first step is to, identify, is to identify portfolios of insurance contracts. IFRS 17 essentially says that a portfolio of insurance contract is identified on the basis that the insurance contracts within a portfolio are subject to similar risks and managed together. The second step is essentially to divide that portfolio into groups of contracts based on their respective expected profitability. And the third step essentially requires that contracts that are issued more than one year apart should not be included in the same group. This is what is commonly referred to as the annual cohort requirement. Now, the first question in the submission relates to the first step of that three-step approach. That is the requirement that insurance contracts within a group must be subject to similar risks. More specifically, the submission ask, asks whether currency risk is a risk that an entity is required to consider when assessing whether contracts are subject to similar risks. So for example, could an entity consider a motor insurance contract with cash flows in euro to be subject to similar risk to a motor insurance contract cash flows in pound sterling? Now, as I mentioned, the applicable paragraph in IFRS 17 says that insurance contracts should be categorized on the basis that they are subject to similar risks and managed together. So the standard just refers to similar risks without specifying the types of risks to, to consider. For this reason, the committee concluded that this requirement is not limited only to non-financial risk and therefore could include financial risk, such as currency risk. An entity would therefore consider all risks when identifying portfolios of contracts. Consequently, financial risk, including currency risk, cannot be ignored in this respect. However, just to be clear, this does not mean that IFRS 17 requires an entity to include contracts with cash flows in different currencies in different portfolios in all circumstances. So what an entity considers to be similar risks will depend on the nature and extent of the risks in the entity's contracts. And I think quite importantly, the staff paper notes that similar risks do not mean identical risks. So an entity should consider currency risk in its analysis, but this does not mean that contracts with cash flows in different currencies could never be included in the same portfolio of contracts. And therefore, it's certainly possible to have portfolios of contracts and group of, groups of contracts that contain multiple currencies. 
Thanks, Carson. I think that's really helpful, just that breakdown of, you know, how to think about the, the issue and how the committee landed where they did and why they did. So moving on to the second question, um, which was on how an entity applies IFRS 17 and IS 21 when measuring groups of insurance contracts with foreign currency cash flows. What were the committee's thoughts on this question? Yes, so, so essentially, once it has been acknowledged that a group of insurance contracts can contain cash flows in multiple currencies, that brings us to the second question. That is, where a group of insurance contracts does contain cash flows in more than one currency, how an entity applies IFRS 17 IS 21 in measuring such a group of insurance contracts that involve cash flows in multiple currencies. Now, IFRS 17 does contain guidance on foreign currency translation. More specifically, paragraph 30 of IFRS 17 states, and, and I quote, when applying IS 21 to a group of insurance contracts that generate cash flows in a foreign currency, an entity shall treat the group of contracts, including the contractual service margin, as a monetary item. So this paragraph seems to contemplate only cash flows in one foreign currency rather than in multiple currencies. And so the question in the submission was essentially what this requirements means in the case of cash flows within a group of insurance contracts that occur in multiple currencies. So there, there are a couple of complexities here, I think. One is that the paragraph I just quoted state that the CSM should be, should be treated as a monetary item. However, as I mentioned, the CSM is essentially the unearned profit relating to the future services, service to be provided under the group of contracts. Therefore, the CSM really is not a monetary item. It does not, does not have any cash flows of its own and is essentially just a residual amount. So the CSM is, is not really a monetary item. IFR 17 just tells you to treat it as a monetary item for the purposes of foreign currency translation. Also, the unit of account in IFR 17 clearly is the group of insurance contracts, and therefore it appears that there's only one single CSM in relation to that unit of account. So cash flows in multiple currencies are involved. So where this is the case, this raises the question, which foreign currency rate do you apply to that single residual amount when you do the foreign currency translation to, to translate into the entity's functional currencies. Now, broadly speaking, the staff paper described two potential approaches. Under the first approach, the group, is, the group of insurance contract, including the CSM, is considered to be de denominated in one single currency. So under this first approach, if a group of insurance contract has cash flows in more than one currency, an entity would on initial recognition determine a single currency in which the multi-currency group of contracts is denominated. That single currency might, for example, be determined on the basis of the currency of the premiums or on the basis of the currency of the predominant cash flows, uh, if that is different from the currency of the premiums. So that's the first approach. Now, under the second approach, the group of insurance contracts, including the CSM, is considered to be, to be denominated in multiple currencies, reflecting the currencies of the fulfillment cash flows. So under that approach, both the fulfillment cash flows and also the CSM would be translated using multiple foreign exchange rates. Now, given the unit of account is the group of contracts under IFRS 17, I think it's fair to say that many committee members felt that approach one, that is you know, determining a single currency, 
was probably the more more reasonable approach and clearly acceptable. I have to say that I personally was also struggling quite a bit with approach two, as you would essentially apply multiple foreign exchange rates to a single CSM that is a residual amount. It doesn't even have any identifiable cash flows on its own. However, the staff proposed, and after some debate, a clear majority of the committee members tentatively agreed that due to the lack of specific guidance, it would be hard to preclude approach two based on the words in the standard. And therefore, the committee's tentative decision is essentially not to preclude any of these two approaches. So let me perhaps finish off this topic with a personal observation. I think it's quite clear that this logic of essentially applying multiple foreign exchange rates to, to, to different portions of that single CSM, you know, under the second approach, does, does not mean that entities would be allowed to subcomponentize or split the CSM for other purposes. So in applying IFRS 17, there's only one single CSM for the group of insurance contracts. Accordingly, if an entity were to determine that the CSM is denominated in multiple currencies, an entity would, you know, the entity would determine the amount of the CSM to recognize in profit or loss by applying a single method of allocating the CSM to coverage units in the group. So, so in other words, when determining the profit recognition pattern for releasing the CSM for a group of insurance contract, there's only one single CSM and it would not be appropriate to create components or sub-CSMs for the purpose of the profit recognition pattern. And even though it wasn't the question that has been submitted, that this reasoning seems to be shared by the staff and the other committee members. And so some wording will be added to, to, to the tentative agenda decision in that regard to indicate that point more clearly. So despite the debate around applying multiple foreign exchange rates to, to the CSM, the CSM still is a single residual amount. And so the discussion of essentially having components of the CSM was strictly limited to foreign currency translation only. It should not be extended by analogy for other purposes. Thanks, Carson. I think you know the questions where you where you have the two standards interacting, they're they're always the most interesting one. And especially when you've got the question around unit of account in there as well. So um yeah. a helpful overview. <laughs> I, I realize it's quite a complex matter. Yeah, so I, I'm trying my best to, to explain this as clearly as possible. Yeah, I thought I thought it was very clear. And to wrap up this month's IFRIC update, um, what are the projects that are still in progress? Well, in, in addition to the tentative agenda decisions that were issued at the June meeting and which we just covered, there are two more submissions that are work in progress. Uh, both of those relate to tentative agenda decisions that were discussed back at the March meeting and where, we, where the comment period ended in May. So the staff is working on analyzing the comment letters that have come in on those. So these two issues are due to come back to the committee as well. So, so the first one relates to lesser forgiveness of lease payments. So essentially addressing some issues around the interaction of IFRS 9 and IFRS 16 in the context of you know, de-recognition and modifications. And the second one that is still work in progress is around the accounting for warrants and acquisition in the context of mergers of special purpose acquisition companies or SPAC the other submission that is currently at the EFRIC on, on specs. So two more exciting and quite challenging topics. And I'm really interested to see and think through all of the feedback that we have received on those in, in the, comment, the comment letters that have come in. 
I think those topics are likely to come back to the September IFRIC meeting for further discussion. So definitely looking forward to that. Thank you, Carsten. And we look forward to seeing how all of the issues you've discussed develop. In the meantime, I'd like to thank you for joining us to provide an overview of the meeting. I mean, I personally find it very helpful to have a quick insight on what was discussed in a full two-day committee meeting in just 20 minutes or so. And it helps to stay on top of the new topical issues. Join me next time as I continue with my mini-series on sustainability-related disclosures. And until then, to all my listeners, happy accounting. The preceding programme was brought to you by PricewaterhouseCoopers LLP. This content is for general information purposes and is not a substitute for consultation with professional advisors. Music